listener production. Hello, listeners. Welcome back for another episode of Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which ordinarily Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're so starstruck by your special guest co-host. I'm just beside myself this time around. Hello, listeners, and welcome back for another very special episode of Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which ordinarily Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to share at a dinner party. And I have been anticipating this mm-hmm. for weeks and weeks now. Um, when Rosie first uh, said that she needed to take another break to look after her health, one of the first things I put out there was that I would really love Lindsay to tell me a story. So Yee. our fabulous producer, Lindsay Green, is stepping in as the host of the show once again this week, and she's going to be serving us a story I know absolutely nothing about. Lindsay, welcome back. Thank you. Yes, it well, was very here. hard to lock her in. I heard her availability is very difficult to um, make space for, but (laughs) yes, I'm here. You're welcome. Hooray. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are you going to be serving us? I am serving you a story that is very relevant to my interests. I've mentioned before that I really love running personally as like a hobby of mine. Mm -hmm. I love following running, running, particularly marathon running. So the story that I'm serving you today Uh is the story of the toughest ultra marathon in the world. Oh, consider my interest. Mm -hmm. This is going to be really fun. Um, As someone who absolutely despises running, I'm curious to know, when did you... Start running. Were you one of those kids that was always into it? And no, adult life? no, absolutely not. I I never played sports growing up. I just wasn't interested in them at all. Mm. And then sometime in twenty eighteen, I don't know what came first. The idea somewhere in my mind, I don't know where. I thought that it would be a good idea if I was the kind of person who could run Mm. because it's something that you can do anywhere and you don't have to pay for it Mm -hmm. and you don't need any equipment. And also at the same stage in my life, it was one of the most depressed times of my life mm-hmm. that I've ever had before. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of, because I'd never grown up playing sport, the idea of even being able to like run to the end of the block was felt so impossible uh-huh. in the same way that the idea that like I could ever be happy again would be possible. Right. So the two things kind of happened in tandem. Mm-hmm. Um And I just started this, um, it's a very common like intro to running couch to 5k. Mm -hmm. Um, I did that. I ran 5k's at the end of that year and then it just kind of spiraled from there over the last few years. Are you addicted? I wouldn't say I'm, I don't know, it's hard because um, I wouldn't, I was going to say I'm not addicted, but I think it is a really, really core part of my identity now because Mm -hmm. it was so influential in that period of my life. Mm. And it's been something that I've done like at least three times a week, every week for the last however many years. Mm. It is such a fundamental part of my life now, but I've had a lot of trouble over the last kind of year or so since COVID of really not being able to run at all. Mm. Like still trying to and getting better, but not being where I was or want to be. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of coming to terms with like, this has been such a fundamental part of my life for such a long time. Mm. Now it's not in my life in the way that I want it to be, mm-hmm. is it still, can I still like consider that part of my 
identity. Mm-hmm. And I think I still can. And it's something that I do want to keep as part of my life. Mm-hmm. But it has been like a massive struggle over the last year not being able to do what I've wanted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you get the runners high? Not these days just because it's so hard. But um, <laughs> definitely like I remember the first time I ran my first half marathon. It was at the Melbourne Marathon Festival mm-hmm. in 2019. And I remember the first 10 Ks of that. It was just like the most blissful experience of my entire life. Like you get around 10 Ks, you get to Albert Park um, and you kind of like run around the back of it, like where the Grand Prix goes. And I just remember thinking like, I have never felt better in my entire life. Uh But then like you come back down St Kilda Road and you loop around underneath the... um, Oh, the exhibition centre, mm. like around that area where the ABC is. And there were a few kilometres there, like 18, 19 kilometres, where I honestly have blacked out. Like I have no memory of them. I just remember kind of like coming to when you loop back onto St Kilda Road mm. and you're like in the final stretch towards the MCG and finishing that, my, my first half marathon, which like was the furthest I'd ever run before and was just kind of like this pipe dream at the start of the year, which in October I was able to do, was like burst into tears. I was so emotional. Mm. Uh, it was the best day. Um, so, yeah, definitely getting, now that running is so difficult for me, getting back to like that place mm. when I finished that race in 2019 mm-hmm. is definitely part of what keeps me going, mm-hmm. even though it is currently quite difficult and not yeah. fun. Okay. You're chasing them. Mm-hmm. Chasing the dragon. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and get into this okay. story. You ready to kick off? I am ready. Okay. So, Jacob, I wanted to start by asking you mm. about your love of the sun. You love the sun. We all know that. Yes. Correct? I am solar powered. Have I ever mentioned that I'm a triple Leo? <laughs> and I wanted to also start by asking you what you know about the world of ultra marathons. Absolutely nothing. Okay. I assume that it's an extra, extra long marathon. And if I wouldn't be surprised to find out if there are like pentathlon type things in there as well. So other different sorts of physical challenges mm-hmm. and whatnot to layer on top of just pure running. Yeah. Well, it is a whole new world I'm very excited to introduce you to. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to pose a question about how you would feel about running in this sun that you love so much Mm -hmm. for 217 kilometres through the desert in the middle of summer from the lowest point in North America to the highest point in the contiguous United States in under 48 hours. (laughs) (laughs) not great (laughs) even the sun isn't gonna sell that to me yeah i um i can't imagine why anyone would want to put themselves through that under any circumstances is there a lot of prize money involved there is no prize money the prize is a belt buckle Oh, oh, my gosh. Okay. And this is a thing that happens regularly, I'm assuming, a race. Mm -hmm. And uh, how many people compete? Three? I'll get to that at the end. Okay. This is absolutely But this is a great starting point. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So today (laughs) I'm going to give you just a gist of how a guy named Al Arnold Mm. started that very race, the Badwater 135 also known as the toughest foot race on earth and how the race has evolved into the modern day. Okay. 
Take it away. Before we get started, this is an American story, so I have converted everything into miles and kilometres. Uh-huh. You're welcome. So, starting <laughs> off, Al Arnold was born on the 4th of February, 1928, in Washington, D.C., but uh-huh. he grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Growing up, played a lot of sports in high school and college, a lot of team sports, basketball, baseball, rowing, rugby, but he did do track and field. Mm-hmm. Also in college, I really enjoyed this. Um he and a friend of his set a record for seesawing. They went up and down 46,000 times for 72 hours. <laughs> so the kind of guy who liked to do his own things and not follow trends, he's quoted as saying, if the crowded masses are going this way, I'm headed in the other direction. It's harder to be that way, but you enjoy more about life. Uh-huh. And I would argue that seesawing up and down for 72 hours is not a great way to enjoy your life, but that's just up to him. I'm sure he had a lot of fun. Yeah. And made friends along the way. I'm sure. A lot of banter back and forth. (laughs) Um, After college, he worked for the engineering department at the University of California for 15 years and somewhere along the way, he stopped playing the sports that he played during high school. Mm -hmm. And then when he was 39, he was diagnosed with glaucoma, which eventually leads to a loss of your vision. Mm -hmm. Around the same time, his second marriage broke down and as a way to kind of cope with the stress, Mm. he started uh, getting into sports again. Mm -hmm. But because he had glaucoma, couldn't do ball sports anymore, so he turned to running and swimming, which Mm. is where our story starts. Okay. So the year is 1972 or 1973. Mm -hmm. He, Al, heard about two guys, Paxton and Ken, who did a relay run from the Badwater Basin in Death Valley, which is the lowest point in the Western Hemisphere. It's 280 feet below sea level, mm-hmm. all the way up to the top of Mount Whitney, which is 14,000 feet, 4,000 metres, and the highest point in the contiguous United States, mm-hmm. which is all the states except Hawaii and Alaska. Mm-hmm. And... I don't drive for context. I have a license, um, but I don't drive. Um, So I just have no comprehension whatsoever of what 217 kilometres means. Mm. But it's about the same distance as Sydney to a bit further past Bathurst Uh or Melbourne to a bit further past Shepparton. So a decent distance. Yeah, like two and a bit hours Mm. driving on the freeway. Yeah. Yeah. So Al, obviously we know from seesawing up and down for 72 hours, competitive Mm weird guy, Um, he heard about these guys, Paxton and Ben, doing their relay run. He wanted to do it too, but he thought, I can do it better. (laughs) Um, And at this- I can do it backwards. (laughs) I can do it barefoot. A real man. I wouldn't put it past him to do it barefoot. Um, And before we go any further, I did want to point a picture of Death Valley for you, where our story (laughs) takes place. (laughs) It sounds lush. (laughs) You can imagine it, can't you? So it's in southeastern California. Uh If you're driving east from LA to Las Vegas, Mm -hmm. it's just before you get over the Nevada border. And if you've seen any movies set in Vegas or around Vegas in Nevada and you're imagining like just an arid, dry landscape, Mm. tumbleweeds, I am picturing um, the episode of Friends, the one in Vegas when Phoebe and Joey drive Phoebe's cab from from Vegas back to New York. Anyone seen the episode? You hit me with Friends references huh? pretty much every week and about 20% of them land. I've only seen Friends just the once. Well, we can all imagine a kind of barren landscape. Totally. Yeah. And it was named Death Valley after a group of pioneers got lost here during the 1850s 
one man died and the rest of them thought that they were going to follow the same fate. Mm. Eventually they were rescued and when they were leaving, someone turned back and said goodbye, Death Valley. So that's where it's gone. It's same from. <laughs> what a drama queen. I like it. I like it. It's apt. It is not the kind of place that I would want to spend a lot of time. It mm. is the lowest, hottest and driest part of North America known for its extreme temperatures up to about 120 Fahrenheit or 49 degrees Celsius. The ground, temperatures on the ground, like on the actual um, uh, road, Mm. have been up to 200 Fahrenheit or 94 degrees Celsius. (laughs) Wow. But Al, for some reason, grew up obsessed with Death Valley. He listened to this radio show called Death Valley Days, which is just like a classic Western radio show. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was just captivated by it ever since. I'm interested to go and visit. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'd like to go check it out. I'm sure it's got a real unique ecosystem if it is, you know, that um, yeah. uh, freakishly hot. Um, does anything live there? They do have their own type of flora and fauna yeah. um, that is obviously, like, unique to the desert. I've read stories of people talking about, like, coyotes and scorpions, mm-hmm. so not the kind of animals that you probably want to hang around with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, like, a tourist attraction. They do have, like, a temperature yeah. gauge which you can take a photo next to, which I guess is kind of cool if you're into that kind of thing. But okay, so uh, Old Mate is obsessed with... Yes, and I don't know why anyone would... Personally, want to go there, let alone run here, let alone run for 217 kilometres in the middle of summer. But that's what our friend Al wanted to do. He's got a death wish. <laughs> death, family death wish. Or a huge ego. Uh, but <laughs> rather than do... Oh, wait. <laughs> I've just assumed he's white. Am I oh, correct? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And straight, obviously, yeah. <laughs> married to a couple of different women. Um, mm-hmm. But rather than do just a sissy relay run like the two guys before him, mm. he thought he's he doesn't follow trends. He wanted to do it by himself. So his first attempt was August of 1974. The longest run that he did before this, keeping in mind that he needs to run 217 kilometres, which would take you a very long time, several, several hours Days, several days, Mm. rather. The longest run he did before this was four hours long. So I think at this point he was less competitive and more just a bit delusional. When I was reading this, kind of reminded me of that guy at Science Works who tried to outrun Kathy Freeman and knocked himself into a wall and then tried to sue them. (laughs) Yes, I do remember. So just have no comprehension whatsoever of what could possibly go wrong. Uh He took two friends with him as his support crew, a guy named Eric, who was a newspaper photographer, and a guy named Glenn, who was a pilot. And on his first attempt, he managed to get through 18 to 22 miles, which is 28 to 35 Ks, which took him about six hours to do. The temperature was around 130 Fahrenheit, 54 Celsius. Oh, and he survived. <laughs> he got he got quite far into it. It is impressive. Mm. Um, he did have to stop because he just got so dehydrated from the obviously the extreme okay. temperature and not having trained specifically for an event like this. Uh-huh. Well, at least he brought experts yeah. to look after him. People with medical experience. Yeah, the to be able to monitor him and give him what he needed. Photographers and pilots are well mm. known for their medical expertise. He said, and I quote, I felt like somebody hit me in the middle of the stomach with a 16-pound shot. I vomited and had no strength to move, could hardly breathe. 
Your pulse rate changes. The blood pressure and body temperature go crazy. You begin to pass out. It's a very precarious position because if your heart goes into ventriculation, then you could possibly die from heat prostration. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need yeah. all these fancy words to understand your body's going to shut down if you try something like this. I guarantee you he shut himself. Oh, he, he must just have. just swore his friends <laughs> to secrecy and has never revealed it publicly. <laughs> guarantee. But he learned a lot from this and he wanted to try it again. <laughs> he said, my friends and family thought, That would have to be the end of my wild ideas, especially as I'd nearly lost my life, but I wasn't going to let go of that dream so easily. I hate him. Why? Because, like, he's... He is lucky enough to have been born a straight white male, mm-hmm. so much privilege. He is able-bodied and he's choosing to waste his life on this risky endeavour that benefits absolutely nobody but is somehow going to fuel his stupid male ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't I have... expect to be outraged by this <laughs> I think that there, because I really love this genre of like extreme ultra sports mm. and the people that they leave behind because mm. a lot like Elle was married and anyone who goes out for and commits their life essentially to doing an extreme feat mm. that may or may not end up with them dying, yeah. I think there is an argument to say that they're very selfish. No kidding. Mm. Yes. And it would be so hard to be in a, mm-hmm. a relationship with someone like that. Um, yeah, I don't find this guy in any way attractive or appealing. Do you know his birthday? I'm going to look up his star sign. His birthday was the 4th of February. In 1928. In 1928, yep. Well, we know he's an Aquarius. They are notoriously stubborn. (laughs) Yep, rebellious, stubborn and selfish, just Mm -hmm. as I thought. Mm -hmm. Checks out. So he still committed to doing it. So he goes back to training. Obviously, his first run before his first attempt was a measly four hours, so he needed to double down. He set up an exercise bike in a 200-degree or 93-Celsius sauna and started doing mammoth um, cycling sessions to try and acclimatise to the heat of the desert. Mm -hmm. And then it was August the next year, 1975, when he tried again. On a pretty cool day, relatively, it was only 40 degrees Celsius, 105 Fahrenheit, and there were showers before, so it was overcast and a bit cloudy. Mm -hmm. This time he only got 50 miles or 80 kilometres into it. He um, cooked his knee and it swelled up to the size of a cantaloupe and he couldn't support himself anymore, Mm -hmm. so he had to call it quits again for a second time. Mm -hmm. He said at this point he was more embarrassed than disappointed because he dragged out his support crew once again into the middle of the desert and he failed once more. He should be ashamed. Mm. Not to mention his wife at home, Mm. who he'd also left for the second time to potentially die. Mm -hmm. But he told his support crew, guys, don't worry, I'm not going to try again. But of course, we knew that he was. So after his second attempt, he started even more intense training, but he didn't tell anyone because whenever he tried to explain it to his wife, Betty, why he wanted to do this thing. She'd understand it, understandably, and she would get upset about it. So he stopped talking to her about it. Mm -hmm. Instead, he just went out and ran between 45 to 50 miles or 72 to 80 kilometers a day, four to five times a week, all night and all weekend. That is the worst double life I've ever heard anyone living. Oh. Not having an affair, going up and running up and down mountains for days at a time. 
This guy hates himself. <laughs> He's a massacre. He said he would tell stories about how he would start a run before dawn and then just kind of go into a trance and like come to at that night mm-hmm. and he would just forget where he was all day. Right. Which I'm sure his wife Betty was really happy with. Is he the inspiration for Forrest Gump? Maybe they took some sort of inspiration from it. Uh-huh. Because that's what he did, right? He just sort of went into a trance and ran mm. from one end of the country to the other. Um, you know, growing up, I thought Forrest Gump was a real person. I genuinely thought that it was like I probably believe that too. Biopic. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of devastated <laughs> to learn the truth. Yeah. Um, okay, right. So he's cheating on his wife. <laughs> With running. With running. <laughs> So then two years after his second attempt, he tried the run again for the third time on the 3rd of August, 1977. He was nearly 50 years old. He took his same support crew, Eric the photographer and Glenn the pilot, and he knew he couldn't give up this time. He'd already embarrassed himself twice before. He couldn't do it a third time. Mm. So to prepare, he did the same thing he did for any training run, which was to not eat any solid foods and have about three and a half hours of sleep the night before. Mm-hmm. Which these days, if you're starting an ultra marathon or even a marathon, you would spend several days before not doing that. Mm. But this was Al Arnold and he had a different way of doing things. Do you sleep a lot in the lead up to? Oh, not necessarily. Like, sleep is obviously important. A lot of marathon runners or um, ultra marathon runners, because these races will start really early in the morning. If mm. they start at like, say, a race starts at like five or six, they'll need to get to the start line a couple of hours early. So they're waking at, up a couple of hours before that. Mm-hmm. So typically the night before a marathon, they won't sleep very well, but like eating like carbo-loading for like a few days or a week before it okay. um, is very common. So going out with just like nothing in your belly is probably not something that anyone would do these days. Recipe for disaster. Yeah. Uh, so he got dressed up in a white tennis hat with the flannel shield draped over his neck and shoulders like we wore in primary school. Uh-huh, Legionnaire's hat, yep. Mm-hmm. And he set out from the Badwater Basin in Death Valley at 5am. Temperature was already 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 37 Celsius. And he knew from the very beginning in his third attempt, if he was going to make it this time, mm. he had to keep his ego in check and run slower. That's <laughs> <laughs> what he's known for. <laughs> and run slower than he would normally feel comfortable to conserve his energy, mm. keep his heart rate low, retain some fluid if possible. And he also had to forget how long it was going to take him. He had Eric and Glenn, his support crew, but he wanted to do, do the actual run himself because mm-hmm. anyone else would have distracted him from his very important job. Um, but then not long after dawn, tourists and park rangers stopped to look at the weird man running through the middle of the desert in the middle of summer mm. wearing shorts and a legionnaire's cap and they would stop and ask him for photos. But he's keeping his ego in check, yeah. of course. <laughs> yep. Yeah, don't, don't let himself get too ahead of himself. Mm. Uh, so he ran the first 40 miles, or so 64Ks in about 10 hours, which is about nine minutes per kilometre. And then he started a climb for 15 miles or 24 kilometres. And then he was nearly at the top of this climb where he started having problems with his knee, like in the second run. Mm -hmm. So he had to stop and do some stretching exercises for a few hours and then got up at dawn the next day to start running again. (laughs) He also wished that the second day would be the hottest day of the year and it was 127 Fahrenheit or Mm -hmm. 52 Celsius. But it was on this second day when he was finally able to start relaxing into the run and just focus on the white line in front of him and go into this trance that he'd practiced during his training run. Uh Eventually, 
he made it to the start of the Mount Whitney climb, the final point of his journey. It was a popular hiking trail, so there are a lot of people on the trail who, again, would stop and take him for, take photos of him and get his autograph. And he actually signed an autograph for a guy, a hiker, who gave him a survival kit in return, which actually turned out to be really important um, later on in the story. And then when he was about 50 metres from the top of Mount Whitney, he stopped. He needed some quiet time to himself, sat down, did some stretching exercises, walked leisurely to the top of the summit and, like me, at the end of my first half marathon, burst into tears when his support crew, Glenn, turned to him and said, you son of a bitch, I never knew you had a soft bone in your body. <laughs> After he's just run 217 kilometres through the desert in the middle of summer. His friends called him soft what a softy. he had a little weep. Um, yeah, a lot of this just reeks of toxic masculinity. I think you'd agree. Does his wife know by this point? Oh. Oh, he's it's, doing this. I, I'm not sure if she knew that he was out on this final run. I guess so. I guess you'd probably have to say the night before, like, hey, babe, mm. you might not see me for a few days. Yeah. <laughs> or ever, because <laughs> I might be dying in the desert. I hope Again. the affairs are in order. Yes. All the Good best. <laughs> best wishes. So he's, so he's at the top of the mountain. He can finally stop and look around and see how far he's come. Uh, it took him 84 hours to get from the Death Valley Basin to the top of Mount Whitney, mm. which also included a 44-mile round trip where he lost track of his support crew vehicle. Mm. So he ran back 22 miles <laughs> to see if they were still there <laughs> and then wouldn't accept a lift back to where he'd started. So he ran back the extra 22, kilom- 22 miles. So that is probably accounts for why it took him so long. Uh-huh. He, over the course of the run, drank 30 gallons of fluid, which is 113 litres, over like just over three days, like yeah. three and a half days. And he also lost 17 pounds or seven kilos. Okay. So he's done it. He's conquered yeah. it. Can I just roll my eyes for a little while longer? <laughs> uh, don't care. I haven't even bothered to learn his name. I'm just calling him old mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's L for anyone playing along at home. And if you thought that this was the end of Al's story, you are wrong, my friend. It keeps on going. So back on the mountain, he had a moment to take it all in, but the sun was setting and it was getting cold, so he needed to make his way back down. Glenn had already gone back down to the mountain to the closest town to call a newspaper and said he's done it, save space in the paper on Sunday. So Al had to get down on his own. But the sun was setting and he only had on his little running shorts. And actually, oh, no, I printed off a photo. Mm. Um, these are from some of the articles that I read from um, uh, Marathoner magazine. Mm. And you can see him here on the cover wearing nothing but his little white jocks. Oh, he's just in tidy whiteies. <laughs> oh, with his socks pulled up nice and high. Um, okay. So he's at the top of the mountain in his little white jocks and he's running shorts. Check out our Instagram. We'll post a picture. <laughs> and he started making his way down the mountain and he thought he would be fine because he'd left some on the ascent up to the top of Mount Whitney. He left some camping gear and clothes and food and some cash on the trail. But when he ba- went back to it, it was stolen. So all he had was that little survival kit that the person, the hiker who signed an autograph for, had given him. Mm. And thankfully inside was a plastic sheet that he could wrap around himself and spend the night underneath when the temperature got pretty cold, actually, because they're in the desert. So it's 
below 20 degrees Fahrenheit, so minus 6 Celsius, Mm. with some pretty gnarly winds as well. Consequences of your own actions, buddy. (laughs) And then the next morning, he got up to make his way down the mountain again, but his knee was giving problems again. He had to soak it in a stream for a few hours and eventually make it off the mountain, make it back to his home and Betty in Walnut Creek. When he got home, he did some interviews on telly, got his usual six hours, or not his usual, his usual is three and a half hours. Tonight he slept for six hours. Then he got up at 4 a.m. and ran six miles or 10 kilometres to the health club where he was working as a director. And this is actually not too uncommon. I listened to a few episodes of the Rich Roll podcast where Rich Roll and his guest had crewed for people who had competed and the athletes would finish and be so totally exhausted and then the next morning would wake up like fresh as and go and run like another 100-kilometre race a few days later. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's totally outside of the realm of possibility that he would be able to get up and run immediately afterwards. He said he felt great after the run, but he was embarrassed to talk about it because it was so beyond the realm of possibility of what anyone at the athletics club could possibly do themselves. So he just kept quiet about it. Oh, he just had to stay humble. Mm -hmm. He couldn't tell everyone about his incredible achievement because they'd feel bad. They weren't as good as he was because he's kept his ego in check. Yeah, he's a very humble guy, this Al Arnold. So he goes back to work, but his wife Betty is probably like, give me some attention, you've been running every day for the last few years, you almost died, let's go to Hawaii. Mm. They go to Hawaii for a holiday and then on their 10th day, Al's out in the ocean doing some body surfing when he's just about to dive underneath a wave and he noticed a kid coming towards him on a boogie board Mm. and he thinks to himself, if me and this kid run into each other, either one of us are probably both going to be injured, probably the kid because I'm so much bigger than him. So he pulls away, but in pulling away, he gets caught inside a wave Mm. and gets trapped underneath and dumped into a sandbar Mm. and is just repeatedly like knocked into the sandbar, can't get up for air, completely paralysed underwater Uh until eventually after being slammed under the water, he says about seven times, he is rescued and brought ashore. So, yeah, he's he's dived to preserve protect himself and he's got dumped and he's exaggerating how bad it was. Yeah. So he goes to hospital. Doctors thought he had been mugged. Okay, not exaggerating. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) His face is covered in um, welts and burns from the sand and he's wedged between some sandbags to keep him from moving. Mm -hmm. But from what I've read about his injuries, he had a cervical dislocation in his neck separated both of his shoulders and had a severe contusion to his spinal cord. This is just a gist, so I am not going to go into the nitty-gritty of what all of those diagnoses mean, mm. but what I got from it was that none of them were like life-ending injuries. Mm-hmm. It was more of a, I get the sense of like a, um, uh, what's that word, like a sudden impact kind of injury rather than like a break or a um, put you completely out of mobility kind of injury. Okay, okay. Very lucky. And then five days after the accident, this is another reason why I came to the conclusion that it wasn't life-ending. He left, he was in a wheelchair, flew home to Walnut Creek, and he was standing within weeks, Mm. jogging slowly afterwards, three weeks. It's hard to really verify these timelines because um, Al is no longer alive. Mm. And from what we've already established, he seems like the kind of guy who would probably overinflate the timelines on these things anyway, Mm. but at least in the articles that I read after three weeks after the accident, he ran 10 miles or 16 Ks 
And then a week after that, he was on the start line for the bridge to bridge race in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. where he ran 11 kilometers or 7.2 miles, only 12 minutes slower than his best time. So how are you feeling (laughs) about Al? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That's that's very fortunate for him that he mm-hmm. was able to get right back into wasting his life. Yeah, so he got back into he never did the run again. Um and but looking back at his accident in Hawaii, he said that running was um what saved his life basically, and then he started to see his recovery from the Hawaii accident as another challenge, kind of like when he lost his eyesight, he turned to running, mm. what could he turn to now? And his delusions of grandeur had dimmed by no stretch of the imagination by this experience because he's quoted as saying, I'm going to run against a horse and rider over a 100... (laughs) (laughs) Over a 100... (laughs) Started again, started again. (laughs) I'm going to run against a horse and rider over a 100-mile course in the Sierra Nevada. I'll have to cross 50 miles of desert without water. I'm going to learn to swim again and compete in the Masters titles in 1979. I know that as I get older and older, I get better and better while everyone else falls apart. It's no use trying to domesticate this man. I'd only be a caged animal. Oh, is he revered as a hero? Mm-hmm. He is. Um, okay, yep. A massive hero. So he never did the Badwater race again. Mm. Um, and from the sounds of it, he lived a pretty quiet life after the run. But then when he came back for his 25th anniversary in 2002, he was treated like an absolute superstar. And he actually, I didn't include this in this episode, but he maintained a blog on the Badwater website for years before, like after his race and before his death, where he would write advice for athletes competing in the modern day. Mm. And I can include some screenshots um, or a link to his blog in the show notes because a lot of it is like, oh, toughen up, you've got this. Like if you put yourself out there, like don't be a quitter, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And what's your take on him and that? Uh, I think his take on it, this idea of like um, sacrifice everything, don't be a quitter, quitting's for sissies, all that kind of thing. I don't know. I think it's really hard because I think that there is like maybe not for people doing it recreationally, but I think that, like, for professional athletes, there is an element of, like, this is what you signed up for, this is what the job is. Mm. Obviously not to the extent of, like, putting yourself in at risk of dying. Mm. I think that's a bit extreme, but I think that there is a kind of level of needing to put yourself in really uncomfortable situations because that's the job that you signed up for. Um, I say that as someone who's obviously not a professional athlete and has never suffered anywhere near um, to the extent of what a marathon runner would would feel in like the last few kilometres of a race. Mm. But I think this idea of like, if you quit, you're a sissy, is I just think really, really Toxic. toxic. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I think it's like kind of like an outdated attitude in sport that totally. hopefully we've moved past. Yeah. But I think that there's probably still like a lot of legacy athletes who may look at, um, I don't know, I don't even know if I've heard people saying this, but I wonder if there's like a generation of retired athletes or also just people, general punters, who look at someone like a Naomi Osaka who bows out of um, a tennis tournament because mm-hmm. of her mental health and say, like, oh, don't be so soft. Like, mm. you've got the best job in the world, just suck it up. 
And I think none of that is helpful. Totally agree with that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> there are some stories about um, resilience mm. and not giving up that I find so inspiring. But like this guy, okay, congratulations, you're being resilient, but it's in a reckless mm-hmm. situation that you put yourself into and I'm finding it really off-putting. Yeah. yeah. Al never did the bad water run again. Four years after Al did it, the next successful run up from bad water to Mount Whitney was a guy named Jay Birmingham in 1981. The first official head-to-head race started in 1987, which is when the first woman competed. And it's been held every year since without serious incident or fatality. Uh-huh. And I just mentioned that I was going to tell you how this event has um, evolved these days, mm-hmm. and also how it has become one of the most competitive ultra marathon races to get into. In 2023, they're going to invite 105 runners to compete with the expectation that 100 runners will start, mm-hmm. but they would have thousands of applications. To be able to qualify for the race, you need there's three things that you can do. You can either have officially finished bad water in the past four years and have completed at least one 50 mile or 80k race in the last 13 months. Two, you can have officially finished at least three running races of 100 continuous miles or longer, 160Ks, at least one of them in the previous 13 months. Not that. <laughs> or if you live in Central or South America, you've officially finished the, ba- the, sorry, the Brazil 135, which is like a Brazil equivalent, mm-hmm. in less than 48 hours in the past three years and have completed at least one 100K or longer running event in the last 13 months. So people from around the world will submit their entries. They're chosen by a selection panel because the selection panel wants people on the start line who are actually probably going to finish the race. And then it's announced via via a Facebook Live event. (laughs) So we could tune in and watch that. We could. I know that I'm going to. (laughs) And I mentioned at the very top of the episode that there is no prize money. The prize is... Yeah, what's that about? Uh, I think it's it's pretty common across all um, marathon, ultramarathon events. Probably the most famous Australian ultramarathon event is one called Costa Cozy, which goes from Eden to the top of Mount Kosciuszko. And I think that the prize for that is, mate, I don't know if it's a belt buckle, but it's something like whimsical like that. Uh-huh. So it, like a novelty belt buckle? Yeah. Or they have a new one every year. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you how much you think it costs to enter the Badwater 135. For context, the Sydney Running Festival Marathon costs just under $200. So how much do you think it costs to enter this race where you're running 217 kilometres in the middle of summer through the desert? So the money, I'm assuming, is paying for the support crew. No, the money goes to paying like the cost of – they also don't have any aid – stations along the course. Mm. So this is going to like national park fees and stuff like that. Okay. And also like Badwater staff and everyone who kind Uh of uh, facilitates everything. So do you have to organise your own support crew? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to guess it costs $2,000. Close. It costs just under $1,600 to enter. US. Yeah. Okay. But I will say it does include entry into the post-race pizza party. (laughs) Wicked. <laughs> and just before we wrap up, I just wanted to talk about the results from the 2022 race. Mm-hmm. So in 2022, the course record 
was broken for both women and men. Mm -hmm. The men's record was broken by a Japanese man, Yoshihiko Ishikawa, Mm -hmm. who ran it in 21 hours and 33 minutes, which is just under six minutes per kilometre. And the women's record was broken by Ashley Poulsen from the US, who did it in 24 hours and nine minutes, which is just under uh, about six minutes 40 per Mm kilometre. And then just before we wrap up, if this was a bit too mundane, a bit too simple, <laughs> a bit too easy for some people to wrap their minds around. There's also something called the Badwater Double, where you go from oh, Death Valley to the top of Mount Whitney and back to Death Valley, which is 292 miles or 469 kilometres. And then there's something called the Quad Badwater, which is Death Valley to Mount Whitney. I'm leaving. I'm <laughs> to Death no, Valley no. and back up to Mount Whitney, oh. 584 miles or almost 1,000 kilometres. I don't know how many people have finished this, but one woman I did find, Lisa Smith-Batchen from Idaho, finished it in how long did it take her? 15 days, I think. She started on the July 1st, finished on July 15th, but she finished it. Freaking warp <laughs> and, to every single one of those people. And that, Jacob and Gistiners, is just the gist on the Badwater 135, the toughest foot race on earth. Thank you, Lindsay. <laughs> I have sprained my eyeballs, rolling them <laughs> to the back of my skull several times over the course of that. Um, okay. I've been dying to ask, what was with the horse? He was doing some. You said the old mate whose name I couldn't remember, he was going to race a horse? Oh, I'll do Command F and C. I think that was when he came back from Hawaii and he was talking about what challenge, what kind of physical challenges he wanted to do next. He said, I'm going to run against a horse and rider over a 100-mile course in the Sierra Nevada. Did he? No. Okay. No. (laughs) (laughs) This was just a pipe dream. Old mate was just... Post-Hawaii. Bit full of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Surprising. So that was it. What do you see as your goal as a runner? Is there anything that you've got as a bit of a dream? Don't let me shit oh, all over these people. Like a pipe dream? Like I don't think that I would ever be able to do it. I would love to do an Ironman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is paddleboard, swim. Uh, no, it's like run. a um, like ultra triathlon. So I don't know how long the swim is, but it's, it's maybe like a 5K swim 100k or 180k bike and a marathon, I think. Uh-huh. Okay. So you're in training? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think like, I don't know, I, I think it would be really cool to be able to do an event like that um, and just to know that you have like the physical and the mental fortitude to do something like that. But it would take over your entire life, yeah. like the amount of training that you would need to do to be able to do excel or at least be really good at all three disciplines. Even like running um, a marathon, the amount of training that you would need to do for that is just such a huge time commitment that I don't know if I, at least at this stage, don't have the motivation to put in that much time. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you. That was fun just to sit here and um, be annoyed. (laughs) for an hour or so. Um, thank you so much. You're developing quite the fan base and it's oh, just going to continue to grow. I can see it happening. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Justin. Bye. Bye. Hey, Jacob. <gasps>
Rosie, is that you? Yeah. And guess what, Gisners? Listen to this. And so he puts a poll up on Twitter, basically saying, do you think free speech is important on Twitter? Mm -hmm. And then underneath that, he tweets, please note, the results of this poll will be very important. And the CEO of Twitter responds to that tweet going, no, they won't. (laughs) (laughs) And Elon cannot handle that. She's back next week. An episode about Elon Musk. Your girl is back. Tune in. Listener.